This is episode 50 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events podcast. We're continuing with the 2009 Annual Enrichment Conference, Behold Christ's Beautiful Bride. This is session three, Tuesday night, with Dr. Gary Brashears. What's the gospel? Jesus, Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus died. Jesus rose. Jesus exalted. Holy Spirit came. Response is if we repent and believe, evidenced by baptism, then we get forgiveness, new life, new community, new mission, and implied new destination. Outline of the gospel. There's a lot there. There's a lot there. Uh, we're going to take some time for questions tonight, so be thinking about that. Not right away, but I've got a pocket full of them here, and uh, there will probably be some more coming, so think about that for just a minute. Where will you find my notes? On my website. That's right. If you go to that cheapcbnorthwest.org, you will not find any pictures of my grandgirls there at all. I, it just... So since some of you haven't figured out that I'm at Brashears.net yet, you just need to see some pictures of my grandgirls. Isn't she cute? That's Nicole. She's eight and a half, and she realized she didn't have a coat on. So she went back to get a coat, and Joy came out to share with me, and she is she's six, almost seven, and she's got a little bit of expressive spirit to her. She's going to be a cheerleader when she grows up. Nicole with the coat on, and then they did the high five, and totally excited, and a little bit silly. Don't you love my grandgirls? I just think they're great. I had several people who know me said, Gary, you've taught twice and haven't shown pictures of your grandgirls. Okay, I repent. You can go to my website and see more pictures of them, too. Uh, it's, I, I do love my kids. and uh, So when we think about church, we did a flying shot at some of the stuff on definition of church this afternoon, and I put some more notes up there uh, that give you a little bit more, and of course there's a whole book about some of that stuff. One other thing about tonight, focus on, is this basic theme that we've been put in your bulletin, because this is just one of those huge, huge, huge questions. How can a church go through conflict to unity? That is a, gosh, that's a big, tough, rough, awful question. I mean, it, it is really, that's probably the hardest thing. Should I get my watch out or should I just talk until I get done? Get a watch? Yeah, okay, probably a good idea. Yeah. Glad to see you guys are realists. Yeah. Uh, there are a couple of things I want to say tonight as we talk about unity, because when we think of Scripture, when I think of unity, I always think of Ephesians 4. Urge you to live a life worthy of a calling which you've been received. Be completely humble and gentle. That does a lot for unity right there. Be patient. That does a lot more. Bearing with one another in love. That does a lot more. And then beyond that, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then he pulls us back to the Trinitarian definition. One Spirit, one Lord, one God. To each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it, and that's where the diversity comes within the unity around the Trinity. It's a, it's a great passage. Love it. So what do we do with this? I'm going to look at a couple things tonight, and then we'll see what happens as we get into questions and open things up. There's a what I call the principle of authority. Principle of authority, which is a, is a foundation in Scripture that's what's written out in your program. And I'd just like to think through it with you. There are three levels in here. Some things are the Bible or sorry, prescribes or commands. Okay. What do you do with those things? You gotta do it. It's not optional. There are other things that the Bible describes. What do we do with those? Uh, when I think about these, I think we gotta 
duum, in good theological English there. What about this? We should follow as closely as possible. I think the reason the scripture describes the way the early church did things is to give us a picture of how to approach things. Uh, Don't follow them legalistically. Don't follow every detail. But they're there for instruction. That's what Paul says. And I think that's a really good idea. There's a third level, and that's where the Bible is silent. I think these are places where God chose not to speak, so to give us freedom to follow the follow wisdom and uh, I'll just call it cultural differences. Put it in a big bag there. Now, every one of those is controversial. Every one of them. And what I want to do is just kind of think through a few of these places and talk through them a little bit, give you a chance to ask some questions, and just look at some things. And my basic thesis is that God gave us the Bible to be fully authoritative in our life. A lot of times controversy comes because we just ignore what it says. And then we lose the unity of the Spirit, we lose the gospel-centeredness, and what happens is people become more interested in communication than in the gospel. People become more interested in tradition than they do in Scripture, and you lose the unity of the Spirit, and you start squabbling. Now, what would be something that is uh, prescribed or commanded? Gosh, there's a lot of things. Uh, We could pick here maybe Jesus is uh, God in the flesh. Where do you get the first picture of that? Where did the Bible start talking about that? Okay, I think that's exactly right. It's a pretty amazing kind of thing when I go back to Genesis chapter 3. This uh, crafty serpent... You know, and you start unpacking this, you've probably done this. Don't you just love that word right there? Did God really say? Jesus is Lord. Really? You know, you can really play with that word. And she understates God's grace. What did God say? Of any tree you may freely eat. She downplays God's grace. And she overplays God's restriction. You must not eat, you must not touch. How like things when you do things. Serpent says, God knows that your eyes will be open, you'll be like God. Is that a good thing or a bad thing to be like God? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. It's a very good thing. It's a very good thing. People a lot of times put into the idea of Eve, the idea that she already has a sin nature. I don't think so. I think Jesus, I think just like Jesus is tempted by Satan, we'll look at that tomorrow, Eve is tempted not to evil desires, but to good desires. A lot of times what happens down here in this next passage People look at this, the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. And they read it in terms of 1 John chapter 2. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. And they put evil desires back into Eve. Don't think so. When you look at this passage and you go back to Genesis 2, 9... The Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow, trees that were what? Pleasing the eye and good for food. 
exactly the same phrase, just reversed order. So I think what happens in this good for food pleasing to the eye is just judging for herself to see that it's just like all the other trees. That's where you lose the unity. See what she's doing? She's moving away from the prescription of the Lord and she's moving into her own judgment. She's moving away from the prescription of the Lord. Don't trust God because, like, who can take him at face value? There's a deeper motive. He wants you to grow up and be an adult instead of a dependent child. Who knows how it all works out? But she trusts her own judgment instead of the prescription of the Lord. We do the same thing. We do the same thing. Comes in all kinds of things. For example, marriage. When does marriage begin? Yeah, it's a trick question. When does when does a person move into the covenant of marriage? At birth. At birth. You live under the prescription of marriage at birth on. One man, one woman, husband and wife in covenant relation for life. So as soon as children can start to learn, they should start learning, you live under a covenant of marriage. Now they may never be married, but that commitment, your romantic sexual relation is for one person. Start from day one. How do we teach kids not to get it on? Kid, you do that, you get us, you get HIV, you get STDs, and all those nasty anacronyms, acro- whatever, alphabite, alphabets. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. I think marriage begins at birth. That's what we taught our boys. And it's really interesting when our boys would start dating and they get their friends, they would drag their girlfriends to our house and say, Dad, Anne needs a sex talk. What an interesting thing to do to your girlfriend. Drag her home to see your dad and mom to get the sex talk. They did that. And, uh, and we did because so we didn't talk about the sex talk. We talked about what marriage meant. We talked the values of marriage and the covenant relationship and the huge trust that comes out of that. Why? It's in the Bible. God paints a beautiful picture of what things can be. That's prescription. That's prescription. So how did they do? Well, not very well. She ate it and so did he, and it was bad. Naked, ashamed, fig leaves, all that good garbage. What does God do when they violate his command? The first thing God does is he comes and he calls. Don't miss the grace in Genesis chapter 3. Now, it's not just grace, but the, the mad makes all kinds of sense. The fact that God comes and calls is amazing. I was naked, so I hid. Who told you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat of? And he, you know, you've heard it all. It's the 14-year-old. It's the woman that you gave me. You know, it's great. I've, I've practiced a lot on Sherry. She doesn't accept it real well. Goes to the woman, what is it you've done? The serpent deceived me. Same kind of thing, kind of blame shifting. They both do it. And he curses the snake. How like God that in the midst of cursing the snake, he blesses somebody. Who can trust this God? He's always blessing somebody when he should be cursing or punishing somebody. And he talks about the head stomping offspring. And from the Old Testament on, from Genesis 3.15, we have the search for this offspring. It's an amazing thing. Amazing thing. Love to talk about that, but not tonight. Curses the ground, and he makes for them skins. Verse 21, more blessing. Where did he get those skins? Created ex nihilo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. 
don't think so. <laughs> Precursor of sacrifice. And interestingly, down here, the tree of life has become toxic to them in some weird way. And God actually protects them in banishing them because to eat the tree of life would be somehow disastrous for them. Incredible God of grace. And he promises from Genesis chapter 3 on, I will be with you. It's amazing stuff. I, I taught for years that John was the gospel that talked about the deity of Christ. You probably did that too. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered before Abraham was born, I am. They picked up stones to stone him, John eight fifty eight, Or maybe you went to John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. By the way, as the JWs start knocking on your door, they're doing that again now. They skipped our house. They always skip our house. I can't figure out why. <laughs> but if they come to you with their New World Translation and they say the word was a God, Rejoice and be ye glad. And just take their translation and say, okay, the word was a God. You know what that means? There must be several gods. Let me ask you, how many gods do you guys believe in after all? We only believe in one God. Well, but your translation says there's a bunch of gods. Like you guys must be polytheists. You're a weird bunch of people. Then they start skipping your house too. <laughs> the word was God. If they say the word was a God like little g God, just point out that he creates because only Yahweh creates. And they believe that. You can, you can tie him in knots. It's a lot of fun. We all know that John teaches the deity of Jesus, but how about the synoptics? I taught for years that the synoptics focus on the uh, humanity of Christ, while John focuses a little bit more on the deity of Christ. Gosh, Shouldn't open my mouth before I read the Bible. Look at Mark chapter 1. What's the first thing that it says here about Jesus? You have the introduction about him being son of God, and then he quotes Isaiah, the prophet. I'll send my messenger ahead of you, prepare the way the one calling from those or prepare the way for the Lord. Quoting from Isaiah. Now, in Mark, as he tells a story, who is the Lord? Okay, in Mark chapter 1, Lord equals Jesus. I can't even spell Jesus tonight, gosh. Where's he quoting from? Isaiah 40. In Isaiah 40, as Isaiah talks about it, in the desert prepare the way for the Lord... Who is the Lord here? Oops, didn't need to do that. Who is the Lord here? So in Isaiah, Lord equals Yahweh. So what is Mark saying? He's saying Jesus is Yahweh come among us. Very first thing Mark says, very first thing Mark says is Jesus is Yahweh come among us. Emmanuel, appealing to the Old Testament. Okay, look a little bit further. Mark 1. So John came baptizing. We get some stuff from him. He wears this camel hair coat, eats locusts. I like that diet when I was a kid back on the farm. I used to roast, roast locusts, grasshoppers really, in the trash fire and eat them. They were really good. Couldn't get any wild honey though. Then he says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Who is he in Mark? Jesus. So in Mark 1, uh, the baptizer is Jesus. Go back to the Old Testament. Go back to like Joel chapter 2. There are lots of these places. Here it says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. So the question is in Joel, who is I? 
In Joel 2, who is I? Yahweh, your God. So, Joel 2, just one of the places, I equals Yahweh. So what's the point? Well, really, it's the same thing again. Jesus is Yahweh come among us. And I won't take the time to point it out, but if you go back to Mark 1 again, and you come down to verse 11, you hear this voice from heaven, you are my son whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. That's the divine Messiah promise from the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 110. And for three times in 11 verses, Mark is saying, Jesus is Yahweh come among us. Prescribed. Now, what happens, what happens when somebody comes and says to you, Jesus was a good teacher? He is that, but if they're saying he's only that, you say, dude, you are wrong. Isn't that mean to tell somebody they're wrong? Not in those kinds of things. We do not have the option. We do not have the option of whether Jesus is God or not. Jesus is God come among us. I am amazed. I am amazed at how many people in what's called the emergent church, not emerging, but emergent church, the emergent village group, are not saying, they're not saying Jesus is Emmanuel. They're asking us to follow Jesus, but they're not confessing Jesus is Yahweh come among us. They're not using the classic formulas. They're talking about Jesus who comes and does good works, and he does. They're talking about Jesus who shows us the good way to live, and he does. But they're not saying, they're not saying Jesus is Yahweh come among us. I'll use names. Brian McLaren. I've read a lot of his stuff. I've not had a chance to ask him. I talked to him about his divine child abuse view of atonement, and we just flat disagree on that. Uh, but I can't find him saying anywhere in his writings, simply straight up, Jesus is God come among us. It's not okay to skip those things. It's not okay. It's not okay. Listen to what people don't say. Because a lot of times the problem is in what they implicitly deny or don't affirm. How important is it in the scripture that Jesus is God to come among us? It's huge. It's huge. And when you start downplaying those things, you lose the unity of the Spirit. Now, just to to make it a little bit more relevant, Colossians 3. Lovely passage. Love to unpack this one. Don't have time for that. How about verse 5? What does Paul say here about sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, and anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language? What does he say? Put it to death. It's a mortal battle with that stuff. How many times in our ministry do we want to be compassionate with people that are dealing with anger issues or pornographic issues or whatever, and we, in an attempt to be compassionate, don't call them, put it to death. We don't help them find the power of the Holy Spirit to do that because we want to be falsely compassionate. I don't think I have to say too much there because you probably agree with me, but isn't it interesting how often in the name of compassion that we end up undercutting the authority of Scripture? I could pick on a lot of other stuff. Uh, I'm a Baptist. Let me do one other. Uh, what does he say here? He says what? Repent and what? Good. I love it. Anybody not baptized here? We could do it tonight. <laughs> it's a command. Okay, that's pretty easy. How about things the Bible describes? Well, let's just pick 
when should you be baptized? According to the Bible. What's the command of the Bible about when you should be baptized? No command. No command. What is the description in church, in the Bible? At the time of conversion. At the time of conversion. Why is it that almost without exception in our churches, we put people through quite a rigmarole before we baptize them? Why? I mean, you know why. What's the answer? What? Well, tradition, that's too easy. Give me a little more reason than that, yeah. What, what's behind the tradition? To make sure what? That they're really serious about what they're saying. And there's some reason behind that. But what ends up happening is that we make baptism a sign of discipleship, not conversion. And when I've taught, and I've done this a number of different places, when I ta- teach in what's now called spontaneous baptism, don't like that phrase, uh, but the idea is you get saved and you get baptized right away. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. Uh, people, well, I can't do that because you might baptize somebody who's not a believer. Listen, I promise you put them through your two years of discipleship and you're still not always sure. On a credible profession of faith, and there's some wisdom in that, I think we should baptize them. I think we're too slow and what we've done is we've disconnected baptism and conversion to our loss, seems to me. Why do I do that? It's described in the scripture, and I think we should do that. Now, since I'm causing trouble, let's get a bigger trouble. What is the qualification for membership in Bible? What's the qualification for membership in Acts chapter 2? What's the qualification here? They were added to their number that day, added to their togetherness, really. What did these people do to be added to their togetherness that day? They repented, they baptized, and they accepted his message. In other words... Membership comes upon conversion. Do we do that? A lot of the churches I'm around don't. They don't implicitly say, you can't join my church until you go through a whole bunch of stuff. But implicitly, let's just really make sure. Let's just make sure that you're one of us. And what we do is we add on a cultural element to a conversion element. We want to make sure that you're tame before you join our church, right? Because if, I mean, if you just let them in right away, gosh, they just, they don't know how to act. And they cause us a lot of trouble. They ask questions that we just don't ask around here. And they say things that believers just don't talk like that. Pretty amazing. This one is actually troubling if you think about it. How do we treat membership? We treat membership as something due well down the way after they get culturally conditioned to our particular church. What's the description in Scripture? Baptism is there. And what is, sorry, what is membership related to? These are people who devote themselves to being together. And it seems to me that membership, when I look at this sort of thing, membership means uh, a mutual commitment to mission and equipping for mission and all that. Pretty amazing stuff. Okay, I won't trouble you with any more with that. Let's think about this one because this is really a messy one. Why did God not tell us well, let me tell you, I, I'll tell you one. What time should church begin? Absolutely. We all know that, just like it says in the Bible. Absolutely. 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. Now, you can vary it 10 minutes, 15 maybe, 10.45, and it's okay. But really, church, 
It, it's, it's 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. 10.30 maybe. Huh? Church well, yeah. Church, thank you. Church begins at conversion. See, I, <laughs> even I do it. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, forgive me, Jesus. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. Caught me. Gotcha. It's good. Yep. How easily we fall back into church as a meeting. How easy. Because it's just so much a part of our culture. I've tried to put in church meeting and church building into my vocabulary just to try to get away from uh, church as a group of people committed to mission no matter when they do that. Uh, silence. I'm playing with baptism. Let's play with that a little bit more. Who can baptize according to Bible? What does the Bible say? Well, it says we're supposed to... Actually, it says one place in the name of Jesus, another place in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We could split over that. <laughs> Pentecostals did. And others. According to the Bible, who can baptize? It actually almost never says. Uh, we know that Paul baptized a few people in Corinth. Who baptized the people in Acts? Who baptized these folk? Repent and be baptized. Apparently 3,000 were baptized. Who baptized them? It doesn't say. It doesn't say. Who baptized the Ethiopian eunuch? Philip. Who was he? He was some deacon. He wasn't even in his own church. Down in the desert somewhere. Who can baptize? I don't know where you guys are at in your churches. I know what I was raised with. Who can baptize? Pastor. Who else? Nobody. How come? He's the ordained guy. It doesn't count if somebody else does it. Yeah. I guess. It's job security. That's it. I, uh, there it is. That is it. It's job security. Oh, yeah. How could I? Gosh. Yeah. Who can lead communion according to Scripture? Got to be an ordained guy. It's got to be. It says, it's got to say it somewhere in the Bible. Why do we, just in our gut, believe it needs to be an ordained guy to baptize or lead communion? Because we still have all that priesthood stuff left over. I mean, the ordained priesthood stuff. And it's not in Scripture. I'll tell you a controversy we ran into at my church, Grace Community Church a while back. Really, when a controversy, it was just a question. Because what we have done, just try to make everybody happy. We have an ordained guy in the tank while somebody else does the baptizing. <laughs> Why? I don't know. We just do. You know, it just, it's totally weird. What? Purifies the water. Purifies the water. That's it. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, yeah. I suppose that's what it is. Purified water. To be <laughs> oh, that, that holy water, it works every time. We, we had a deal a while back uh, where we had two high school girls that had come to Christ. And they, their stories were just phenomenal. They were both from pagan families. And, and they got saved. So we thought, well, who should baptize them? You know, and it's just a question we asked. And somebody said, well... I guess the youth pastor ought to do it. The only problem was the youth pastor had basically nothing to do with them. I mean, he knew them, but he wasn't particularly involved in their lives. So we said, well, gosh, who led, who led the girls to Christ? It was another high school girl. Girl. Uh. <laughs> hey, well, who discipled them? Same high school girl. <laughs> So what did we do? We asked her to baptize him. Whoo! With the pastor in the tank. <laughs> oh, gosh. You know, I, I really wondered what would happen in our church. And what we found is, we explained what was going on. We explained Andrea's role in, in these two girls' lives. 
And everybody's good with it. They totally understood. Because they're used to the idea that where the Bible is silent, we follow what's wise. And the only pattern we had is the guy that led him to Christ, the disciple maker, is a good person to baptize him. So we did that. And nobody was upset about that, except that Andrea dropped one of the girls and she just about drowned. <laughs> it was a memorable baptism. I wonder how many churches that would have been a problem in. Would it be a problem in your church? I know it wouldn't some, because I've asked. No, only a man can baptize. You know, I, I just don't find that in the Bible. I just don't. And see, my question is not to tell you who should baptize. My question is, why do you make those decisions? My understanding is that when the Bible is silent, God didn't forget to say something. I really, really, really don't believe that God forgot to address that question. I think the Bible is purposely silent on a whole lot of stuff to give us room to be wise and spirit-led to deal with different cultures and different circumstances. We don't like silent Bible. We don't like having to depend on wisdom. It's easier to be reliant on legalism or religion. Or take a prince for one thing. I do believe that elders are male. I think I can defend that biblically. <laughs> yeah. Anyone want to vote against me now? Yeah. But I don't see anything about elders being the only ones who can baptize or lead communion. We find absolutely no guidance whatsoever in Scripture about who can lead communion. None. None. Pardon? Yeah, he can bake the bread. Good idea. See, those are the kinds of questions that I find myself asking. And for the sake of unity, who should give in? A lot of times what happens is we appeal to the weaker brother stuff. Where is that in Scripture? Romans 14. Mm -hmm. That's one of the good ones. There's a couple places that shows up. So I was talking about here the uh, adiaphora. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, and others with weak faith is a vegan. That's <laughs> what it says. That's <laughs> what it says. Okay. Real men, eat, real men eat red meat. Absolutely. Just like it says in the Bible. The man who eats everything, okay, is the most spirit guy, but he shouldn't look down on the weaker guys. Yeah, okay. All right, sorry. I shouldn't do that. But you know, it's really interesting here in the other passages. Who is the weaker vessel? It's not that old battle axe that's trying to tell everybody what to do because if you don't do it my way, I'm offended. Ask them if they're the weaker brother or weaker sister you'll discover a bit of offense. Who is the weaker brother? It's the new convert who hasn't learned the freedom they have in the spirit yet. That's the weaker one. Not the old battle axe who's the Pharisee. The Pharisee is your problem child. Go after him. I call them crows. <laughs> I grew up on a farm in Missouri. What's a crow? They never sm smile, they never sing, they just peck and caw. You know who they are in your church? Just, I mean, you could probably name them. Some of you might be them. Crows, hut? Always eating dead stuff, yeah. What do you do with a crow? You shoot him. Absolutely. We got a volunteer back here. I got an amen in the back. Yeah. Seriously, how many have the courage to go after crows? Because they're usually on your deacon board or they're usually a big giver in your church. How many have the courage to go after crows who want to put their authority in places where the Bible is silent? I think we should go after them. Jesus did. Paul does. 
That's actually commanded in Scripture. Religion is our enemy. Now there's a side on their side where you skip things. So a point of unity, it seems to me, is letting the Bible speak and letting the Bible be silent. Pretty powerful stuff. How do you deal with conflict in your church? Where in the Bible does it talk about a doctrinal conflict that's handled in the early church? How about Acts 15? The Acts 6 is a procedural conflict, and it's handled. Acts 15, I think, gives us a picture of how to handle conflict. What's the conflict here? Well, some of these Pharisee dudes. Unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. Real controversy. Paul and Barnabas brought in dispute and debate with them. They got the shotgun out and were going after them. And they went down to Jerusalem because that's where these guys were from. This is not the Jerusalem council, though it's often called that. This is a time when let's go back to the church they come from and see what it is. So they get on the way. They get to Jerusalem. And what did they do? They reported everything God had done. Then they had a business meeting to deal with the controversy. How did they deal with the controversy? What's the first thing they did? Who spoke? The crows, (laughs) at least from our perspective. The Pharisees stood up, and what did they say? They said, I believe. In Acts 15, people speak for themselves, saying, I believe. Nobody reports what they believe. They speak for themselves. And what do the other people do? The others listen with their Bibles open. So the Pharisees stand up and speak first. Then after a much discussion, <laughs> Peter got up. What did Peter say? He said, well, dudes, I believe. No, so the Pope has spoken, right? <laughs> the whole assembly is listening to this process they became silent as they listened to whom? Barnabas and Paul. Third group stand up and say, I believe. And when they finished, James stood up and said, brothers, listen to me. And then he makes some stuff from Scripture, and he makes his conclusion. And when they're done, the apostles, elders, and the whole church make the decision. So we have four different groups speak, and they all say, I believe. The whole church is involved, and under the leadership, make a decision. Why don't we do it that way today? When we have doctrinal controversy in our churches, what do we do? Typically, the elders, whatever you call that group of people, the governing board of your church, get together in a closed room and they make a decision. And people come in and make reports to that group and tell what they believe, right? Why do we not have open discussions like this? Gosh, that'd stir up all kinds of controversy. Try dealing with it by not letting people talk. Can we keep people silent? Not a chance. They Twitter each other and all kinds of stuff goes on. All we do is empower the gossip line. 
And what happens is we empower the crows to become hereticos, setting up their cronies to go into battle because they never have to stand up and say, I believe. They stand off and criticize what somebody else believes. It's easy to criticize. It's easy. What you do is you make them stand up publicly and say, I believe, then they take responsibility for their stuff. And other people can ask them questions respectfully. You know what it does for controversy? A lot of it simply disappears. Because when people say, I believe, and others listen carefully, a lot of the controversy just disappears. Oh, that's what you believe. I didn't know that. I'd heard you believe so-and-so. I think we ought to follow Acts 15. I really do. But it's so messy and it's so dangerous. Why people get up, you never know what they might say. Set the ground rules. You get to say, I believe. You can use the Bible all you want. What you can do is say, you jerk. <laughs> Amazing what that does to settle controversy because people have to stand up and say their own stuff. Maintaining the unity of the Spirit. A couple of things you can do. Let the Bible be silent, then rely on wisdom and Spirit-led. Another thing you can do is have people stand up and take responsibility for their own stuff, but do it publicly, not via the gossip line. Pretty amazing what it does. Pretty amazing what it does. Now, <clears throat> let's see. I have, gosh, I have 15 minutes left almost. That's amazing. A uh, couple questions I got here. Think about yours. I'll answer a couple of these real questions. Uh, something I said yesterday about in Acts chapter 2. When he started looking at that, repent and be baptized, and a whole bunch of people were accepted. And what happened to these folk? Everyone was filled with awe. Many wondrous signs were done. Who did the signs here? Who did the wonders and miraculous signs? The apostles. Somebody asked me the question and said, Gary, you said supernatural work being done today, where there it's done by the apostles. Okay. Uh, aren't, joy, where did that come from? <laughs> Miracles. Uh, apostle things. Sheesh. We'll get it yet. Uh, so in Acts chapter 2, verse 43, they're done by the apostles. Okay. This is a act in Acts 2, 38, it is. Also in Second uh, Corinthians 12, oops, 12, 12. The things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles are done among you with great perseverance. Again, who's doing it? Apostles. Uh, so 2 Corinthians 12, 12, and there's also Hebrews 2, 4, and some others. Uh, something to watch for in this kind of thing, be careful of assuming only or all. Okay. Who did apostles in Acts 2? Who did the miracles here? Apostles. Okay. And so are apostles the only ones who do miracles? Well, let's look. If I do a search in Acts, so I put in period and put miracle, spell it right, put a splat there so I get miracles and all kinds of stuff. And I look here and I find Acts 2, Acts 4. I look at Acts 8. Who's doing great signs and miracles in Acts 8.13? Who is the... Who's doing the miracles here? Philip. 
And uh, so we find that Philip goes up to Samaria and he does miraculous signs. What kind of things? Evil spirits are driven out, paralytics and cripples are healed. Those are pretty high-level miracles. Who is this Philip dude? Is he an apostle? No, he's not an apostle. He's not even an elder. What is he? He's a deacon, an evangelist. He's kind of an ordinary dude. Now, he's not. He's full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. But here's a place it says specifically in Scripture that somebody who is not an apostle does it. Well, he's associated with apostles. Everybody in Acts is associated with apostles. You know, that doesn't help much. How about like Acts 14? If I go down, uh, this is the story of Paul and Barnabas. They go into a Jewish synagogue, and Paul and Barnabas spend considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, uh, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. Who does miraculous signs and wonders? Paul and Barnabas. Is Barnabas an apostle? No, he's not. So what I'd like to suggest to you is be careful of implied onlys or alls because something happens with apostles sometimes doesn't mean it's happened all the time. Look for counterexamples. A lot of times what happens is we take something and we make it, uh, we generalize it to all people. Saul on the road to Damascus, how did he get saved? I mean, God slapped him down, Jesus slapped him down, all kinds of stuff. Is that the way everybody gets saved? No. Listen to some Calvinists, I think it is. Uh, Be careful of onlys and be careful of alls. Anytime you look at something, listen and say, is there an only or an all and is it justified? Does God sometimes raise up evil to accomplish his purpose? Absolutely. Chaldeans take out Jerusalem. The Jews and the Romans killed Jesus. God absolutely can raise up evil to accomplish his purpose. Is all evil a result of God's purpose? Now, that's an issue of great controversy. My issue is I want the people to say, yes, it's always from God's hand, what we call meticulous providence, I want them to show me the all from Scripture. And what I find is it's real hard to do. I don't take a meticulous providence view. I'm in Randy Alcorn right now is writing a book on suffering, and he takes a somewhat meticulous providence view because I keep talking him out of stuff. (laughs) And we're having a great time with the theological wrestling as he's writing his book. And I've been challenging him, and he's actually been paying attention to some stuff. I love it, ironing, sharpening iron, because he's made me look at some stuff. Well, gosh, I don't like that, but it is what the Bible says. Be careful of onlys, be careful of alls, unless the Scripture says that. And it's really interesting in some places. Well, let me not go there. I'll just cause trouble. Um, What about children who walk? I was talking about David, my son. Some of you reported back to him what I said. Thank you for doing that. I said there was never a time when he didn't believe in Jesus in an age-appropriate way. Somebody came up and asked me a great question. What about children who show every sign of conversion and walk away when they reach adolescence and never come back? What's a huge problem? What about the 45-year-old who's been a pastor all his life who gets mad and walks and becomes a Buddhist or an atheist? I have a friend, wonderful, godly woman, whose husband was a pastor, was seminary student when they got married, pastor who ran into a huge evil thing in his faith that God always uses evil for his own purposes, shattered under the particular evil. This man is a hardened atheist now. He's got the most godly wife you'll ever want to see in your life. Is he saved or not? I'll give you a good, precise theological answer. I don't know. (laughs) I know he's in trouble. What do you do with people who walk? It's a problem all over the place. 
don't stop believing that children can have authentic faith because people walk away. Otherwise, you can't have anybody saved until you know, like one minute before they die. It's a good question, but I think it's a question run across a lot of different things. Uh, no, there's, let's see. Questions? Yes. Membership. I heard you right. According to your definition of membership, then we would all be members of every denomination. We would all be we would all be members of every denomination. I'm going to repeat this for the tape. See, well, okay. My take on I'm only talking about local church here. I. And, and if you're a member of a local church, you're a member of the universal church, I'm not sure where denominations fit in that. So I'm not even, I mean, there's, I'm not sure what to do with denominations. You want to say a little bit more? Okay, when should a person become a member? Membership should, biblically it happens at conversion, it described. Okay, we have different definitions. Are you picking this up? Do I need to repeat this, Kurt? Yes or no? Yes. Uh, okay, keep going. I still don't know what to do with denominations because I don't think individuals are members of denominations. Please. How do I define a member in my church? I believe a member is a confessing believer where there's a mutual commitment to the mission of Jesus Christ. As your church defines that mission? No, as the Bible defines that mission. The mission is to build, to, what is it, win, build, send. You remember that one? Hmm? The mission is to win, build, send. Reproduce churches. I mean, that's our mission. The Bible describes that. That's not optional. No, no, no. Members of my church are not members of the church down the street, but all persons are members of the body of Christ universal. But why aren't they members of the church down the street? Why are they not members of the church down the street? They like our church, I guess. <laughs> I... I, there is a there is a unity that happens under the leadership of the elders and the bond that happens in my particular church. But there is a sense in which I am a part of the church down the street in the fact that we're all part of a bigger team. But the particular commitment I have under the leadership, and that's where local church is a group under an, a leadership and organization together, and I think there is a bonding that happens at that point. Yeah. I just understood and was taught that the, the same question was being asked over there, but the way I understood it was this was the, the Feast of Pentecost. This is the Feast of Pentecost, that's Many true. Many who had come who spoke different languages. Right. Many who come who speak different languages, yep. And so when the Spirit came upon them and there were 3,000 converted, yes. it was taught then that they all became a member of the local church, the point being that they all then went home to their different churches or the oh, 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 oh. okay and the cool okay good let me repeat that i think i get it now these guys got saved at pentecost and they went back to Achaia and uh, you, persia and phrygia and all those places i don't know what it says it says they were together had everything in common selling their possessions every day they continued to meet together this sounds like a bunch of dudes what stayed in Jerusalem. The folk from Phrygia apparently went back to Phrygia and started church back there. This one uh, speaks about a bunch of people that stayed in Jerusalem, and this number is a local church in Jerusalem. I think it's what I'm talking about here. Now, there were Phrygians who apparently went back to Phrygia, but I don't think they stayed around here. In, I don't think he's talking. I don't think he's talking about something that lasted a few days. This sounds like something went a long time, for years. So I think this is describing from verse 42 on.
the local church in Jerusalem. That's the way I would read it. Yes. Can we describe the local group as a covenant community? What do you think, Mark? Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, I think it is. Why would I say covenant community? The word covenant is not used here, of course, but these are people who were together. That's that rushing along in unison thing that I've had so much fun listening to Ben's sermon on. They continued to meet together, uh, and they're they're sharing everything together. Yeah, that's sure sangha. They're devoted to each other. and so, yeah, I would, I would think they do this. They do things together. This togetherness is a big part of it. That's what I'd say was covenant community. Yes? Jesus said, go make and baptize. How could baptism then become a non-command? I said baptism and non-command? No, I didn't. I rep- if I did, I repent. I mean, look, that one's, I mean, that one's easy. It's right in the book. Repent and be baptized. No, I think I said that's a command. Well, that I can check. If I did, we can fix that. No, I said when. No, I, if I said that, I totally repent. I will fix that like real quick. I mean, I, 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 I don't want to, I am a, <laughs> there are some things I'm not going to be talked out of. Baptism is a command. Okay. Yeah. If I said that, I, I, I did not mean it. I, I, not at all. No, baptism is a command. I am a Baptist because of that command. I really am. And baptism is described in scripture. And the theological picture is immersion and immersion, both. Resurrection, uh, death and resurrection. So thank you for clarifying that because I don't want to be... I'm, i got plenty of heresy you can take a shot at me for, you know, <laughs> but that one isn't one. Yes? Walk into Starbucks. Walk into Starbucks. I go to Cooper's. Yeah. He's saying you're sitting there. Okay. Okay. Going, uh, Pete Sanger is the Princeton... I hesitate to call him an ethicist. He thinks he is. He's the guy that just makes mockery of morality, uh, if you know the name Pete Sanger. He walks in, can you have morality without God? I would say absolutely, to a degree. You, why can you have morality without God? Because we're made in the image of God. God's law is written on our heart to a degree. So can you have morality without God? Yes, you can't have Yahweh's morality without God. But you, everybody has image of God marked on them. And I, I think there is a natural law morality. For example, how many people in the world would say, thou shalt not murder thy neighbor? How many cultures in the world will say, thou shalt not murder thy neighbor? I'll accept animals. <laughs> yeah, I'll accept animals, yeah. <laughs> uh, cannibals don't murder their neighbors. They murder the guy down the stream who's not their neighbor. Actually, I think even the cannibals, even the bloods and the crips who are busy shooting all kinds of folk, are they don't murder your own guy. You don't steal from your own guy. You don't steal your guy's wife. The guy who's not a person, the guy in the other tribe down the river, you know, do it to him all you want, but don't murder thy neighbor. Jesus was radical when he said, my neighbor is the crip. My neighbor is the radical Islam who's trying to murder me and I should love him and do his best. That's where the radicality comes in in Jesus. Okay, one more and then we're going to hear Trace. Yes? What role does the church membership covenant play? The covenant is to win, build, send each other. And that is that covenant is to be devoted to one another, which is what happens there in Acts chapter 2. So is there something more you mean by the covenant than that? Um, Membership begins at conversion, and there is a mutual commitment, and of course that's what I'm reading right out of this. These people were added to their togetherness, and they devoted themselves 
to these things. So uh, that membership is a commitment to come into that covenant community and the covenant community commits to entering into covenant with them. So uh, I think that covenant commitment begins right away rather than waiting off two, three years for discipleship classes or something like that. There's a lot more we could do. Uh, We're going to quit for now. Uh, What we're going to talk about tomorrow is I want to talk about uh, one of these things, the fifth point uh, in the gospel. What's the gospel? Jesus is Emmanuel. He died, rose again, exalted. Holy Spirit's come. If we repent, believe, and are baptized, we get forgiveness, new life, new community, new mission, implied new destination. I want to talk about that exaltation and triumph over enemies tomorrow uh, when we get together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the wonder of your word. Thank you for the power of your spirit. Thank you for the salvation that comes through the death and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.